Hello and welcome to our late-breaking webinar, Immigration in the Time of COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining. We see that uh, many of the folks who've registered are signing in or in the process of signing in. So we thank everybody for taking time out of their day to join us and uh, to become part of uh, learning about uh, some of the changes that we're seeing with respect to the immigration system uh, and managing uh, the immigration function in these turbulent times. Um, I'd like to welcome uh, my co-presenters, my partner Elise Falkowski and my partner Michelle Madera. Thanks so much for joining. Elise, you can say hello to everybody. <laughs> Hi, Bill, and thank you everyone for joining. <laughs> and Michelle. Hi, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well today. Thanks so much. All right, so uh, briefly to go through the outline of uh, where we're going to go today, we're going to be talking a little bit about what we're seeing with government operations and then with the important issues around travel. We're going to update everybody with the uh, H-1B cap uh, and uh, what needs to be done uh, for the folks who work through the electronic selection process. We're going to talk about really, uh, changes in employment that are driven by COVID uh, or the impact of COVID on business operations. And we're going to break that down into the impact on various temporary visas, the impact on the permanent residence process if uh, people are sponsoring workers through that, and then, of course, some issues that are uh, directly related to the affected employees, how they are going to be affected by uh, the changes that get made uh, in their employment status. We're going to have questions and answers at the end, although you do not need to wait for the end to ask your questions. Uh, if you look on the control panel on the right-hand side of your screen, you'll see a box which is labeled questions. We welcome you to uh, put your questions into the box. We will answer those questions as we go along, if they are uh, part of that topic or if they're going to be addressed later. Uh, but uh, we will also use that question and answer box. Uh, we will uh, give the verbal answers at the end. So uh, do please type in your questions uh, as it goes along and as the question comes to your mind. Uh, I will also let everybody know a recorded version of this will be available to all people who registered for the seminar. We will also be launching it as a special edition of our podcast, Statute of Liberty, Statutes of Liberty, uh, available, of course, on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and all the other places where finer podcasts uh, can be downloaded. So with all that uh, preliminary stuff out of the way, uh, we will now go ahead and begin the presentation. <clears throat> uh, first thing, what are we seeing with regard uh, to government operations uh, and travel kinds of issues? Um, whoops, I think we may have skipped a slide. There we go. Um, so the first thing we want to let everybody know is that USCIS is continuing to maintain its operations. Uh, they continue to receive uh, applications, although there were some reports yesterday that the Vermont Service Center was temporarily shut down because of a COVID scare. Um, however, overall, all of the USCIS offices are maintaining operations. They are not, however, scheduling any in-person interactions until uh, the first week of May at this point. Um, those in-person interactions would include uh, adjustment of status interviews, uh, and they also include biometrics, um, people showing up for biometrics notices. Now, interestingly, uh, USCIS has said that wherever possible, they will reuse biometrics that were already captured in order to continue processing applications. Uh, this, of course, makes me wonder why they needed to be capturing them again in the first place, but perhaps some of these questions are better not asked. Um, the other thing that has definitely affected the processing of cases and the strategy for cases 
is that USCIS has made premium processing uh, unavailable. Premium processing, of course, normally to pay an extra uh, $1,400 to have the uh, decision in your case made within two weeks, uh, and that has been uh, suspended. Now, in part, uh, this was the normal suspension that happens for H-1B cap cases, but then the uh, USCIS then expanded it to all uh, things that are filed with premium processing. Um, so uh, one of the first practical impacts that that's going to have is we're going to see more clients uh, asking uh, individuals who they offer positions to uh, to come on board using H-1B portability. Um, previously, people would use premium processing in order to get an approved H before the person could start work. Um, they, of course, do not have to use premium processing. They could use H-1B portability. The fact that the new employer filed the petition for them does allow the person to start work. Um, however, because of an increase in the number of denials, many uh, candidates were uh, understandably reluctant to change jobs until they knew they had an H uh, in their hands. So what we're seeing with the suspension of premium processing is having a lot of discussions with individuals about um, you know, whether it's safe to join and, and uh, you know, using that H-1B portability to join before the new H petition is approved uh, because, uh, you know, what we'll talk about shortly, processing time generally uh, is going to go up. And so we expect that an employer is not going to want to wait. Uh, if they are hiring somebody in these times, uh, it is probably because they really need that person on board. Uh, they're just not going to be willing to wait for four to six months for an employee uh, to join. Of course, the other place that this affects uh, uh, case strategies is there are, are people who are reaching the maximum time in H-1B status who may need an approved I-140 in order to take advantage of the extension of H past the six-year limit. Uh, if you were counting on your I-140 being turned around in two, two weeks to be able to hit your max out date uh, coming up this summer, uh, that's going to become very difficult. Um, of course, the other reason people were using premium processing is to get a quicker H extension so that the H-4 uh, EAD for their spouse could be processed. Um, that may cause gaps in uh, H-4 EADs uh, as we get uh, further along and as the H-1 extension uh, is, uh, is not granted in a timely manner. Obviously, the only uh, strategy around the premium processing suspension is really to file those kinds of extension cases and I-140s as soon as possible uh, and, of course, to request expedites wherever uh, there is a basis to do so. Processing times generally are getting longer, but we have seen, for example, uh, individuals where the employment is in the healthcare industry, we have seen USCIS be willing to expedite EADs or H approvals in order to get those folks able to continue working. So um, that takes us to our next group of topics. Elise, you want to walk us through these? Sure. So it, there's many travel issues uh, now. Um, most uh, consular posts, if not all consular posts outside the United States, um, are not booking any appointments. And even for appointments that were already booked, they are being canceled. Uh, they are only handling visa appointments for emergencies. Um, we are seeing some appointments go through, um, similar to what Bill said with regard to expedites for medical workers. We are seeing some situations, if it's in the public interest for someone to travel, 
say, for example, they're doing research related to the pandemic, um, looking into treatment options and so forth, um, that is something that may be considered an emergency. Um, we are seeing very narrow definition of when the U.S. consulates will actually move forward for an emergent visa interview. Um, we're also seeing um, very generally um, travel restrictions globally. I think everyone knows the U.S. rolled out tra many travel restrictions, starting with the Schengen area, at, then adding the U.K., Ireland, and other areas. There also was a Federal Register announcement um, limiting travel on our borders to essential travel, including, for example, U.S. citizens, permanent residents, um, those working in the medical area, and so forth. Um, we are seeing some differences, though, in the application of the, the ban on travel. There are still some locations, at least on the Canadian border, including Peace Bridge, um, where we do see the officers at Peace Bridge um, still adjudicating, at least as of last night, <laughs> still adjudicating TNs um, and L1s at the border. Um, and the most recent word is they are not applying um, the essential test very closely. They're looking just generally, is the person coming to work here? Are they authorized? This is a, a wait and see. We don't know if that will change, but at least at this point, depending upon where you go on the border, you may be able to get in. Um, we also have had some clients who are Canadian citizens um, who were able to enter the United States um, without issue, uh, just with either their approved I-129S or their approved uh, I-797 for an H or another visa. Um, so what else are we seeing in terms of government operations? Um, there are updates with regard to Form I-9. I think everyone knows the Form I-9 um, is the requirement for an employer to review any employee status and attest that they have valid work authorization. Um, Interestingly, the government has not changed at all the deadlines for Form I-9 completion. Um, Section 1 must still be completed by the employee day one of employment. Section 2 must still be completed by the third day of employment. On March 20th, however, the government announced flexibility in the requirements related to I-9s. Now, what was in essence that flexibility? Um, in that memo, the government allowed employers, um, if those employers um, have uh, remote work in place and social distancing, so that those employers could not um, complete the I-9 face-to-face, the government allowed for the first time um, at least for an initial um, 30 days, um, uh, virtual I-9 completion where the employer can review the documents either by email, by WebEx, or scan um, to initially complete the I-9. 
Um, there's a lot of very detailed requirements in terms of what an employer must keep to do this. Um, we're going to cover all of those requirements in uh, an upcoming webinar on May 19th. Um, so there, it is a possibility, but once the employer comes back and people are working on site, there is still a requirement for the employer within three days of everyone coming back on site to finalize the I-9, looking at those original documents face-to-face -face with the employee. Um, because these requirements are somewhat cumbersome and uh, are actually imposing two or, or more deadlines on the employer, we still have a lot of employers that are opting for other options that have always been in the regulations. So we have many employers who are opting still to have an agent um, complete the I-9 where the employer would give instructions to that person, that person would still be face-to-face -face with the employee. Sometimes it could be perhaps a family member or other close relative. Um, they can complete the I-9 in person, attest to the documents, um, and send that section over to the employer. I think there's risks with both approaches, um, and we will cover those in detail on our upcoming webinar. Also wanted to remind everyone, um, despite everything going on with the pandemic, the new Form I-9, um, and that's the one with the October 21st, uh, 2019 edition date, must be used as of May 1. I think a lot of our employers already started using it, but please, please check your I-9s, make sure you're using the latest version. So I also want to talk um, quickly about accommodations for um, deadlines generally. Um, so similarly to the I-9s where the government did not budge at all in terms of giving employers more time to complete the I-9, um, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services still has not um, allowed any extension of timelines for those, for example, who are running out of time or running out of status. Um, it, all we received from the government was an announcement on um, this Monday, uh, April 13th, um, in uh, a general post um, regarding COVID-19 delays and extension change of status of filings. The government basically said in this time of the pandemic, um, there are several things people who may be running out of status can do. And it basically reiterates the regulations as they stand now. It's not giving us anything new. It basically says you can apply for an extension um, before your status expires. Um, and it said that there's some consideration of flexibility for late applications based upon extraordinary circumstances. I find it very interesting though that there's no blanket approval for late filings um, in terms of late applications. Rather, the government says it's going to be considered in its full discretion. Um, it will be a case-by-case -case determination 
Um, in any situation where the filing is late, um, the filer must submit evidence um, and it has to be credible evidence supporting the request and why it's late. And the government will then make a determination as to whether or not the delay is commensurate with the facts produced. So we have no blanket uh, approval to file late and it is purely in the discretion of the government. Perhaps this announcement was somewhat in response to a recent filing by the American Immigration uh, Lawyers Association and the attorneys um, led by uh, AILA's uh, litigation committee, um, including one of our partners, Ron Clasco, to challenge USCIS in terms of USCIS's failure across the board to take into consideration um, the pressures that are being caused by the pandemic. Um, that litigation is still moving forward, um, and we do not believe at this time that this announcement um, that was issued after the litigation um, is really going to stop that litigation moving forward, because all the government really did was reiterate um, the regulations as they stand. Um, so, Michelle, can you give us some updates uh, with regard to uh, the H-1B cap and the lottery results? There may be some better news for many of our clients there. Yes. Um, so we do have some good news to report. Um, if you listen to our H-1B cap webinar um, back in uh, um, earlier times, January or February it was, um, we were skeptical if the pre-registration system would work. But the good news is that it did work. Um, there were some small glitches, um, as a lot of you had seen, um, browser issues, it said a lot of attorneys weren't um, actually attorneys and those types of things, but overall the system worked. So we're um, very happy about that. And um, things seem to be going smoothly. So we did receive the lottery results. Um, as you can see, there were 275,000 entries. Um, last year, there were 201,000 entries. So there was a, um, an increase from last year. Um, our initial predictions were that it would be an even higher increase um, just because it's so simple and there's only a $10 fee attached to it. Um, so we were happy that it wasn't um, as high as expected, so you still had a pretty good chance in the lottery. Um, the master's cap had a 50, just under a 50% selection rate, and um, the bachelor's cap had a selection rate around 30 to 35%, which is very, very similar to last year. Um, now, there have been some reports of um, uh, duplicate filings getting rejected. So if, you know, the employer accidentally um, submitted um, a registration and then the attorney submitted a registration, um, that would have been considered a duplicate. That would be update to, updated to show denied. Um, luckily, um, we haven't personally seen any of these issues or these erroneous denials um, for duplication issues, but it is um, something that has been reported due to a technical error and um, our uh, American Immigration Lawyers Association is looking into it and um, trying to work with USCIS on that. Um, as, as many of you know, you can only submit one um, registration per person per employer. So those duplicates were, um, were getting denied, even if it was an accidental duplication. 
Okay. Um, so um, now what's next now that we've gotten through pre-registration? Um, so the petitions will need to be filed within 90 days of the selection date. So right now the selection dates were all March 31st. Um, so we have to file within 90 days of that. Um, now I do want to note that um, USCIS did come out and say receipts for CAP petitions will not be issued until May 1st at the earliest due to the COVID crisis. So while we can start filing them as of April 1st, um, we would not receive any receipts for any of those filings until May 1st at the earliest. So it's possible that um, that gets pushed back even further. Um, now, a question that we've seen a lot of, and I'm sure everybody's um, curious about, what if a registered worker is not going to be needed or is getting furloughed? So two things I want to point out about that is, um, the first, let's remember that for a CAP case, employment is starting October 1st. So if it's a furlough that you think um, you would still need them come October 1st, I would say proceed with that case, right? Because, um, you know, while they may be furloughed right now, if you do have plans to bring them back um, in, in the fall, um, hopefully when this crisis is over, then you would want them to have um, the H-1B. Now, there may be other status issues that come with a furlough that we're going to talk about. Um, so there may be issues that you need to talk to us individually about on a case-by-case -case basis for their work authorization between now and October 1st but that is something to be mindful of. Um, the other thing is that when USCIS released the FAQs for the pre-registration system, they did note that employers will need to intend to actually proceed with the hire. And you may be asked to explain why you didn't file a case if that case was selected. Now, obviously, those FAQs were released in a much different time. Um, and I don't think anybody really saw COVID-19 um, uh, coming then. So it is possible that um, USCIS, if you decide not to proceed with the registered uh, H-1B that was selected, um, you could be asked to explain why you didn't proceed with the hire. Obviously, um, layoffs, terminations due to this crisis, I think would be a very understandable explanation. Um, we could also proactively make those withdrawals. There's been no guidance on how they would want us to make the withdrawal of that registration. It's not something available in the electronic system. Um, you know, I would uh, recommend that we just proceed with withdrawing like we would withdraw an actual H-1B petition. You submit the selection notice, you send it to the appropriate service center, but there's been no clear guidance from USCIS yet if that's how they would want us to proceed. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, RFEs and denial rates. People who have been through this before, um, you know that the cap is usually fraught with RFEs um, and some denials. Based on the lottery results that I talked about earlier, we anticipate about a 25% denial rate because um, so many were selected. So, you know, as you know from the lottery, there's only a certain number of H-1Bs allowed to be issued. Since they over-select um, because they anticipate a denial rate, we were able to figure out that we expect it to be around 25% or more. Um, other things I just want to note is that they could run a second lottery. So um, if USCIS, um, based on this lottery, has a lot of denials or has a lot of companies that choose not to file for the selected H-1Bs and they don't meet the quota of 
65,000 each is an additional 20,000 for those with U.S. master's degrees. Um, they could run a second lottery at some point before September 30th. While I don't think that's likely to happen, it is a possibility. So if a lot of employers do um, pull back their H-1B filings and they don't hit those numbers, um, that is something that could happen. Um, and we would check that um, in the pre-registration system. And I would anticipate an announcement from USCIS if a second lottery is run. Um, and obviously, we um, talked earlier um, about the suspension of premium processing. So that also impacts cap cases. Now, USCIS has said that they will prioritize cases that um, need the filing adjudicated earlier, like cap gap and those types of cases. Um, so that is something that they are planning to look at. Um, so, uh, but as we saw from last year, um, without premium processing, cases do take a very long time. Um, so uh, we'll be monitoring that very, very closely. Okay. Um, so now I'm going to kick it back to Elise to talk more about um, other employer issues for other kinds of visas as well. Great. Thanks, Michelle. So we're seeing many, many, many questions um, by employers um, trying to figure out how to keep their business running uh, in the time of COVID-19. So what I really want to talk about is impact of um, changes in employment on the various visa categories that we deal with. So first, I want to talk about the visa categories that are based upon that labor condition application or that LCA. So that's our H-1B employees, our E3 Australians, as well as our H-1B1s uh, from Chile and Singapore. Um, it, it, uh, there are a lot of ramifications for these visa categories in particular um, because of that labor condition application. So remember, whenever an LCA is filed for any of these visa categories, it lists the location of employment and the employer attests that it is going to pay the required wage rate for the area of intended employment. And that required wage rate is going to be the higher of the prevailing wage, right? That's the, the survey salary, so to speak, for the area of intended employment and the actual wage, that's the wage paid at that employer. So there are implications because of that LCA and location changes. So what if the person works from home um, and the LCA previously only listed the employer's work site? Um, if the person is working from home um, and home as we would expect in the normal scenario, is within the same area of intended employment and commuting distance. All the all that needs to be done is the LCAs need to be posted, believe it or not, um, there's two options, be posted at the home in two conspicuous locations for 10 days, um, or perhaps as we are doing with many H-1Bs now, because so many employers are working remotely, there is the possibility that that LCA could also be posted um, on the intranet as well for the employer. Um, so working from home, there are clear options where that LCA could be posted um, either in the house for 10 days or on the intranet. One of the questions that we are getting is whether or not 
the person's home, in fact, could be considered a work site. Um, we don't have much new Department of Labor guidance on this. Um, basically, we have the regulations and prior guidance, including, for example, the Department of Labor's uh, fact sheet, 62J, that focuses on work site and place of employment and gives a very simple decision uh, um, opinion in terms of worksite is the physical location where the H1 worker actually performs her work or his work. So it could, in fact, um, be the person's home. We have seen uh, historically that the government has considered um, remote work at home a worksite. We've even seen, for example, when there are um, fraud detection and national security site visits and someone works from home. Um, we have seen questions about remote work, even so far as FDNS asking to see the um, remote work location. So that's working from home for all those visa categories subject of LCA. What if, however, um, there is a change in location? Um, what if the person needs to be moved outside the area of intended employment? Um, you know, clear across the country, for example, um, to a different location. Um, that new location could be deemed a work site. Um, one of the things that we've been discussing internally at the firm is, is there an argument, for example, if the employee comes to the employer and says, um, it's, it's not safe on the East Coast, I want to go work remotely in Illinois, um, I'll be able to do my job, um, but I'll be in Illinois. I looked at the map and there's a really small amount of cases there. Um, query whether the government may make some kind of consideration down the road that perhaps because it's the employee's initiative, it's not a work site, but, and I wanna be very clear on this, as of today and the guidance we have from the Department of Labor, the Department of Labor's guidance is not giving us any clear flex flexibility in this regard. Um, in fact, the Department of Labor um, issued on March 20th um, FAQs related to COVID-19, um, specifically addressing um, changes with regard to H-1B uh, employer moves. And in those FAQs, and specifically FAQ 4, the Department of Labor basically said, um, if the H-1B, H-1B1, or E3 holder begins work at a new worksite location, a new LCA is required. So you need to file a new LCA and an amendment is required as well because of that new location. And the only concession the Department of Labor gave us in that FAQ is that the employer has an additional 30 days to file that new LCA um, for that location change. So that's in the new FAQ. Um, query, there may be one other potential option um, for a change in location for H-1B employers. 
um, that option could be using the short-term placement rule. So the short-term placement rule for H-1Bs um, may be used in certain situations where, for example, the employee moves uh, temporarily to another work site, they maintain their office or work site at the original location, um, they do spend most of their time at the original location, and their normal residence is in the permanent work site. Um, so that may be an option. There are um, very comprehensive rules, however, regarding short-term placement in terms of tracking. The other concern that we have, however, if you use the short-term placement rule, the regulations clearly require that the employer is required to pay employee spent expenses, including, for example, meals and lodging. So this short-term placement rule does not neatly fit in the situation we have now with COVID-19, where people may be working elsewhere just because of the pandemic. So let's talk about um, furloughs with regard to H-1Bs. So if there is a furlough with regard to um, an uh, H-1B, um, generally that furlough would be considered um, benching or a violation of the, uh, the H-1B. Um, I want to distinguish, however, furloughs which are mandated by the employer where the employer says, um, we have no work for you now, you are not gonna be paid, um, but when things get rolling again, we expect to bring you back. I want to distinguish that from the situation where, for example, an H-1B employee affirmatively comes to the employer and says, for example, um, I have a personal situation, I want to go on leave, um, I cannot work because, for example, I need to take care of my children. Um, I need to homeschool my children. If it's something, or I need to take care of an ill family member. Um, if it's something that is initiated solely by the employee, that may be a situation where it comes within the Department of Labor regulations. Um, that allow that temporary time period with wages not being paid. Um, pay cut is another issue to consider with regard to the H-1Bs, because remember that labor condition application lists a minimum salary that should be paid to the employee. Um, generally, if there is a pay cut for an H-1B employee, we would argue that an amendment may be required. We may, however, um, and there isn't much clear guidance on this, but if we look very closely at the Department of Regulations and then we look at the LCA, if the LCA had a wage range, and many of our um, employers list a wage range on that LCA, if there is a wage range on that LCA um, and the pay cut will still be above the minimum for that wage range. We do believe that there is an argument that we do not need an amended LCA and we do not need an amended H-1B petition. So there may be an argument in that situation. Um, 
we have not tested those out yet, but it, it, it could be a good argument based upon Department of Labor uh, rules. Query whether USCIS will accept it. I think the argument may be a little bit more difficult if the pay cut goes um, underneath um, the minimum on the wage range, even though it may meet that prevailing wage, that survey wage. Um, there could still perhaps be an argument there that the employer's actual wage scale actually changed, right? Because this may apply in most situations where, for example, there's a 20% a across the board pay cut. In that situation, um, we may be able to argue that the required wage rate is nevertheless being paid. Um, but before doing that, we would recommend contacting your classical attorney, um, talk through all of the options, because there will also be compliance requirements, including, for example, updating your public exam file. Um, termination and rehire. Um, termination for an H-1B. Um, to affect the termination, we need to withdraw the LCA for the wage requirements. There is a 60-day grace period after termination for an H-1B, um, so that they could stay in the United States and the possibility then of a rehire. Um, so there is certainly a possibility in that regard. There is um, some talk on the internet that there might be the option of a that 60-day period under the regulations and bringing back without a new filing. Um, I would urge caution in that regard. However, if you look closely at the language of the regs, it talks about an effective termination or cessation, um, and the safer cost course would be to refile. So let's very, very quickly talk about the visa categories that don't have that labor condition application. The good news is if you are on a TN, if you are on an L1 intercompany transferee, if you are on an E1 or E2 treaty visa, or an O extraordinary ability alien, there is a very much additional flexibility. Work from home, there is no problem with work from home in those categories because they are not location specific. Um, so work from home is fine. Same thing, change in location for those categories, generally not an issue. Um, if there is a furlough, um, for any of those non-LCA uh, categories. Um, we would be concerned that that could be uh, considered a violation of status um, if the person is furloughed. So it, they could be considered not to be maintaining their valid visa status. Now, what about um, pay cut for all of those individuals? The good news again, there is no requirement for a minimum wage rate in those categories. So a reasonable pay cut um, may be absolutely fine in those categories. Um, reduced hours as well. If the applications initially said full time and there's a drastic reduction in hours, the question is whether or not that is going to be a material change that requires an amendment. There's the possibility that if there's a drastic cut in time for these categories, the government down the road may require an amendment. 
So that very quickly is a lot of information with regard to the many visa categories. Michelle, um, I'd love it if uh, you could talk about some issues we're seeing with regard to PERM and changes in employment. Before we do that, I just want to jump in quickly. And uh, okay. there were a couple of questions that I just want to clarify. Uh, so you were, I think, correctly laying out the most conservative approach to make sure that you're in compliance. And I think we'd all agree that that, that advice, while certainly going to keep the employer safe, um, you know, isn't very flexible and isn't very useful in terms of managing through this process. So we have done some creative thinking about this. We would want to make sure employers understand uh, that they're operating in a much more gray zone, um, that an option uh, about considering the home office not to be a work site. Uh, uh, the, you know, not doing postings there, not filing amended petitions in certain characteristics. So, you know, for those employers on the line who uh, you know want to explore other options, please do schedule a time with your classical law attorney to walk through some of those more creative options and arguments that might be made. Um, I would point out that there's, uh, <clears throat> you know, what what you're doing in those scenarios is you're deciding that you would rather ask for forgiveness than permission. Um, so that may be a, a, a difficult. Uh, discussion and, and weighing some interests uh, in that regard. So uh, just to flag that, though, obviously, um, you know, we want to stay as compliant as possible. Uh, if that is practically very difficult, then we need to explore some more creative options. Yeah, and Bill, I absolutely agree. I mean, we've worked with many employers to figure out some creative options, um, recognizing that there may be some risk. Um, so I do think if we go beyond the regulations that it does make sense to talk to one of us so that we can go through the potential options and the risk. And there may be some options, but I think the employer should only move forward in those situations um, after they know the potential risk and after we've hopefully strategized and come up with some good options. Great. So Michelle. Talk us uh, through the perm process. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, we were pretty lucky in that the Department of Labor actually provided some guidance on um, perm recruitment pretty quickly into the COVID crisis. Um, so one of the first things they announced was that um, we could get an additional 60 days added okay well let me back up and start with um the perm recruitment for anybody who isn't aware once it starts you have 180 days to file um the perm case and there's a mandatory 30-day grace period um where the recruitment has stopped and you're reviewing the resumes and things prior to filing um the department of labor announced that um they you are eligible to add 60 days onto that 180-day time frame if the recruitment had started within 180 days preceding President Trump's March 13th announcement. So there is a little extra time built in now to the perm recruitment phase um, because they understood that this has a large impact on operations and it might be difficult for employers to um, meet that 180 day time frame. So there is a little bit of flexibility there. Um, and they did specifically call out that that applies to the notice of filing process as well. Um, now, 
um, onto the notice of filing issue. So as many of you know, the notice of filing has to be posted um, at the worksite. There's no option for electronic notices of filing the way there is for um, the H-1B labor condition application. For the perm, it does have to be in person. Now, many offices are closed and, um, you know, people are staying home, so that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, unfortunately, there is no workaround announced yet for that. So what we've been advising um, on the um, clear um, conservative side is to still post in person as required, um, but also to do an electronic supplement. So if the perm was ever audited or there was a question by the Department of Labor, that you posted it at a work site that is empty um, or just has, you know, two people working in your mail room or what have you, um, you know, you can also say, well, I also posted it electronically um, if, if it's, that's not something you normally do. So, you know, um, so there is that extra step taken to um, really make that notice of filing um, available to your staff. Obviously, one of the largest concerns we have is the effect of layoffs um, with, with um, everything you hear in the news and on the, about the economy right now. There's obviously a ton of layoffs. Unemployment claims are up really high. Um, the most important thing is, you know, if it's in a, the same MSA, um, the Metropolitan Statistical Area, and it's a similar position, we have to account for that um, and, and take that analysis into our PERM case. So please, please let us know if you're experiencing layoffs, hiring freezes, and other things so we can analyze that and figure out um, the best way to uh, strategize your perm cases. Um, the other thing is with um, unemployment being so high and the rece uh, uh, um, ongoing recession, we anticipate that there will be increased audits of perms that are filed. Um, and potentially supervised recruitment. We do see this in other recessions that we've experienced, like in 2008 um, and that recession. Now, I will say in 2008, it did the we did see higher increases in audits and supervised recruitment for the financial industry because they had um, they were affected so much. But I do expect for this one, um, it will be more uniformly applied um, across various industries because this does seem to be a recession that is. Um, really impacting so many different companies um, that I don't think it will be any industry-specific trends we could um, focus on this year. But, you know, um, that is something we expect to see as things are ongoing um, in the next few months. Um, so now, um, you know, we talked about uh, employer issues for PERM and other visas, but now we also want to um, talk about some employee issues that we're experiencing. So, um, Bill, do you want to talk about how this might impact employees? Absolutely. Uh, so the first thing I want to highlight is that F1 students who are on OPT have various limits on the amount of time that they can be considered uh, unemployed. Now, one of the questions we frequently get is whether a person who has uh, uh, paid time off, if they're being required to use paid time off, is that unemployment? And the answer is no. Just as when a, an employee takes a vacation, if they have paid time off, they are still considered to be employed. Uh, the second uh, kind of related question is, well, what if an F1 OPT holder is uh, put onto part-time hours? And uh, since F1 uh, uh, OPT can be for a part-time position up to as long as it's at least 20 hours a week, that would be another way uh, for that F1 student to avoid uh, the unemployment bar. 
Um, I think there's a bigger question if the F1 is uh, stuck outside the U.S., if that person is able to work remotely. Uh, I would argue they're not in a period of unemployment, but I also know that uh, being outside the U.S. Uh, may mess up the, uh, the CBIS record, so I would refer people back uh, to their designated school official um, to see what's uh, going on in their uh, CBIS record before they try to re-enter the United States. The second thing that uh, we're advising a lot on is how the 60-day grace period applies, particularly for people in H, but it's also available to people in L and O and other types of visas. If a person is terminated, then under the regulations that have been in place since December of 20, uh, of January of 2017, uh, the individual does have a 60-day grace period uh, within which they can depart the United States, they can file for a change of status, um, or uh, they can change employers within their particular category. So uh, those are uh, those do take the pressure off a little bit prior to December, uh, uh, prior to the 2017 rule. Uh, we would have had to advise a person that they were immediately out of status. Now um, it is true that they're not maintaining status, but uh, it is also true that. Um, the uh, uh, the grace period is there to allow them to change employers uh, more uh, more easily. Uh, now, uh, of course, if the person is in their grace period, if it looks like they're not able to find another employer, what are some of the other options? Well, uh, we are having a lot of people who are changing their status to B, to B visitor. Um, uh, visitor is a kind of catch-all category, uh, and very often we see individuals who are either at the end of their H-1B time or who are temporarily laid off, if they think they will be laid off for a longer period of time, they will apply for a change of status to B. Uh, the important thing there is they do have to show that they have some ultimate plan to leave the United States. Very often they're able to say, I have to get out of my lease, I have to sell my car, I have things I need to do, my kids need to finish school, so that's why I'm asking for the change of status to B. Um, they do have to show that they have the financial means to support themselves um, we would be tentatively optimistic that immigration would be uh, relatively willing to grant changes of status to be because of these uh, kind of unusual uh, circumstances that we're all in now. Um, the other category that people look at is, are there schools which offer curricular practical training, uh, which are in their area, which might offer a change of status to F? Of course, there the key issue would be whether uh, you know, this seems to be a bona fide educational purpose and whether um, the student can afford uh, the, that tuition. So changes of status to F are uh, not the easiest things to do in the best of times uh, because of the way the CVS system interacts with the way immigration adjudicates those changes of status. Uh, but if someone is sort of looking for something uh, that may hold them in place, that may be uh, a viable option uh, if they prefer that to the B. Now, uh, the uh, next issue that comes up with individuals is are they eligible for payment under the CARES Act? This was the act that Congress passed, which uh, put uh, $1,200 in the uh, bank accounts of most people who filed a tax return, and there are other ways to claim it uh, if you did not file a tax return. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear. It looked from the law that if you had uh, a, a Social Security number, you were going to be eligible for it, but if you filed a tax return with an ITIN, uh, you were not going to be able to. And what our question was, uh, was whether if you're an H-1B visa holder and you have uh, filed a joint tax return and of course your spouse would have had to have an ITIN. Um, anecdotally, we have heard some people receiving those payments 
Um, but uh, uh, so that would be uh, a good news. If, if they were uh, filing a tax return with a social security number, uh, they should have gotten that payment. Uh, obviously, a 2018 tax return was what was required, uh, or to have filed your 2019 tax return uh, uh, earlier this year. Um, but anyway, that's uh, that's something uh, uh, to just highlight there. And then finally, we're getting a lot of questions around the eligibility of uh, uh, people on temporary visas for unemployment. So the most important thing to remember here is that unemployment is not a matter of immigration law, it's a matter of state law. And the state and federal laws kind of interact with each other. So each state is allowed to set its own requirements in order to be eligible for unemployment. Now, the key thing that temporary visa holders have to be aware of is that most states are going to have a requirement that the person be available for employment. In other words, uh, <clears throat> if there's some condition, which means you lost your job, which means you also can't do any other job, uh, the uh, eligibility for unemployment is not going to be there, and that's regardless of immigration status. However, immigration status can go into the question of whether or not you are available for employment. If you're on a L visa or an O visa or an H visa where you're needing to be sponsored in order uh, to uh, be working, you may not be eligible for unemployment. Uh, so do be aware that uh, individuals in those categories may have a difficult time in qualifying for unemployment. Uh, the other thing that happens uh, is, of course, people may be in the final step of the green card cost process. They may be filing for adjustment of status. They may anticipate that they are going to get interviewed or that they're going to get asked to provide what's called the I-485J, which is confirmation of employment. Um, if those people are furloughed or if they lose their job, of course, they're immediately worried that they will have gotten just to the very end and, and that they will uh, not be able to complete the green card process. What we can assure them is the adjustment of status process requires an offer of employment. It does not require that the person has been working the entire time the adjustment of status was pending. Therefore, um, uh, I uh, want to highlight that, uh, that, that just because you've lost your job in the meantime, it, it's not the, uh, the most important thing. There is a question on the I-45J about a permanent job, but that's not actually in the statute. You just have to have some kind of job. And so one of the options we tell people is look at self-employment. Uh, incorporate yourself, start doing your job as, uh, as a self-employed person who makes themselves available to others as a contractor, um, that can be a way to show that you are working in the occupation. Uh, the test is, are you working in the same or a similar occupation as you were sponsored for? So, obviously, critical issue, if you're in that final step of the green card process, you should certainly consult with an attorney if your employment status changes. But the top line uh, uh, thing to take away here is that it's not always uh, going to be fatal. In fact, it, it may rarely be fatal uh, to the adjustment of status process. The final thing I just want to throw out that's a, a piece of good news, we were seeing delays in the adjustment of status process because USCIS was insisting on doing interviews of all employment-based adjustment of status cases. Uh, now they have backed away from that and they are using the time where they're not doing in-person interviews to go ahead and uh, give the uh, person their green card without having an interview. Um, so one question came up, you know, is, is all of this uh, activity and the shutdown of USCIS going to affect the visa bulletin? Um, at this point, the answer is no. The visa bulletin will probably stay at about its same levels because the immigration service is simply going to go back to approving adjustment of status cases for employment-based visa holders without uh, holding an interview for them. 
so if a if a adjustment of status applicant gets a request for evidence that asks them to turn in their medical exam, uh, that's a great sign that the immigration service wants to grant that case and the medical exam that they filed expired. Uh, you know, we hope that you can find a, a USAIS certified physician who's willing to <coughs> go ahead and do that medical exam because if you can turn that medical exam in in response to the RFE quickly. The Immigration Service you know, has lots of people available to do those cases, and they look to be uh, trying to use up all the visa numbers this year. So the quicker you can respond to one of those RFEs, the better. So there you go. That's uh, many of the issues that are facing individuals. Um, I want to quickly call to everybody's attention. We have two further uh, webinars planned in this series. Uh, as Elise mentioned before, we have our worksite compliance uh, 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 in uh, May 19th. We also, before that, have uh, a review of our extraordinary ability uh, practice, O1, ZB1, ZB2s, what's the latest going on with uh, those practices. So uh, those are upcoming, and we certainly hope that you'll join us for those as well. <clears throat> um, so uh, with that, we're going to uh, go to the question box. As a quick reminder, uh, if you do have a question that we didn't answer during the presentation, you can type it into the question box. We'll address as many of those questions uh, as we can uh, and uh, uh, follow up with you if we weren't able to answer your question uh, on the question box. Uh, one of the people asked whether there will be handouts uh, that will be sent along. Yes, uh, handouts and other resources from our website are available and will be sent uh, to participants. In addition, as I mentioned before, a recording of this will be made available uh, uh, as well. So uh, with that, let me um, go ahead and ask um, uh, Michelle, can uh, what somebody asked here uh, is unemployment insurance, receiving, receiving unemployment benefits, are those a benefit that could be held against uh, a temporary visa holder if they go to apply for a green card under the public charge rule? Um, no. So unemployment is um, classified differently um, because it is a form of unemployment insurance that employers pay into um, that should not be utilized um, in, in the public charge analysis. Now, if somebody doesn't have a job when they're um, being considered um, for the public charge, that might have an impact on it. But receiving unemployment benefits will not. Um, and the same goes for the stimulus checks um, that we talked about. Um, those are not going to be considered part um, uh, for the public charge because those are a uh, considered a, like a tax refund almost. So um, those will also not be an issue for public charge analysis. Yeah, so the kinds of things that would affect public charge analysis are food stamps, uh, income support, uh, uh, non-emergency Medicare. These are all things that people on temporary visas are actually not eligible for, um, but uh, uh, under under most laws, so uh, just uh, but certainly the unemployment, uh, as Michelle said, uh, is not going to cover it. Um, Elise, uh, do you think uh, that the current state of things is going to delay uh, employment authorization production? Uh, uh, delays in EAD uh, filings seem to. Uh, uh, do you think that'll that we'll That's see delays? How are we handling it? Yeah, so that's a really good question that we are looking at now. Um, there is some good news, I think, for some cases. Um, if the individual already has biometrics, um, so if they've already gone to an application support center, 
um, we are getting many, many, many notices that the government is now using uh, the biometrics that were obtained previously. Um, at this point, it's unclear, however, if we are filing an absolutely new case um, where there are no biometrics on file, um, whether or not the government will make any accommodations or whether or not whether they will still require those biometrics. Um, the good news is we are still getting some of the EADs and advanced paroles approved in the normal course and timeline, um, and we're seeing that with those notices um, saying that the biometrics were reused. Great, and uh, so then uh, one question uh, that's um, uh, was asked about what if an employee, if an H-1B employee, so you mentioned you mentioned H-1Bs and, and not able to give furloughs, but what about if an H-1B employee takes an unpaid leave? Um, is that considered a violation of F-1, uh, of H-1 status? Uh, right. I, I don't know how you advise on, on that regularly. Right, so that's, that's a fantastic question. So if the H-1B employee takes an unpaid leave, there's a clear section of the regulations that says that if the employee is requesting the leave and it's because of something the employee is requesting, um, what we're seeing now is employees requesting leave because they cannot put the time into work, right? They need to perhaps educate their kids um, because the kids are now home and they're, they're doing homeschooled. Um, or perhaps they need to take care of an ill family member. Um, if it is on the initiative of the employee for the unpaid leave, um, that is fine and they maintain H-1 status under the regulations. Our concern is um, where it is not on the employee's initiative, but it is on the employer's initiative where they basically say, we don't have work for you and we're not paying you. Right, and I, I would say that, uh, you know, you have to be a little bit careful just in the sense that there's obviously a continuum of right. uh, being willing to take unpaid leave, right? So if you ran out of PTO and you need to take a sick day, um, that's unpaid leave and it's clearly continuing to maintain H-1B status. Um, if you take Family Medical Leave Act, which is 12 weeks under the Family Medical Leave Act, it can be unpaid, uh, and that would be you know 12 long weeks um, where you'd be continuing to maintain H-1B status because that's kind of a normal feature of American employment law. Uh, you know, the longer it gets than 12 weeks, the harder it is to say. Um, you know, I think that as long as you have at least some reasonable expectation of returning to work. Uh, there's an argument that you're maintaining status, um, but uh, you know certainly once it gets to 12 weeks or or more, uh, I think you know then you may need to worry a little bit about a status maintenance issue. Um, but certainly any shorter periods of time, you should be fine. Yeah, Bill, I absolutely agree, and I, I certainly hope this won't be lasting more than 12 weeks for us. Um, but who knows? Um, one other pointer for any um, employers dealing with that situation. Um, is I would recommend um, at the time that that request is made by the employee for the unpaid leave, make sure that that's clearly documented. Um, you know, we've got a, 
a, a great compliance team and we've assisted with many LCA audits and inspections. And one of the key things the Department of Labor always wants if there is an unpaid period, they do want documentation showing that it, the employee did request that leave. Um, so I would say before you know that leave is taken, right around the same time, contemporaneously get that written documentation and request from the employee. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, we've got a question on receiving the stimulus payments and whether that's uh, for the public charge. I believe we answered that. No, it's a tax credit. Um, the, I, uh, I'll just toss that to Michelle. Do you think there's going to be an increase, uh, not a decrease, in international hiring moving forward? So our, our, our graduating F1 students, are they going to have a more difficult time getting, getting hired, do you think? <laughs> That's a great question, considering my husband uh, works at a university where he helps foreign students find jobs, um, along with American students as well. So yes, I mean, I think with um, there's a lot of uncertainty around um, hiring right now, especially entry-level positions, um, because we just don't know what's going to happen in the next few months, and people are just, um, employers are just a little bit nervous. So I do think there will probably be a slowdown in hiring, but I think that's also based on um, your industry. Um, you know, we do have lots of clients who are still proceeding with hiring um, if their industry is maybe considered essential or um, uh, necessary in this time. So I think it really um, depends on that industry level and um, uh, that industry and, and the hiring that's going to happen. Um, and, you know, I'm knocking on wood. Hopefully this is sort of a short-term um, issue. And, you know, once things settle down, maybe at, um, later in the spring or early summer, we'll see those hiring numbers go back up as people get uh, more comfortable with this sort of new reality. Yeah, certainly in the 2008 downturn, uh, we saw that it was more difficult for people uh, who needed sponsorship to find jobs because it was difficult for everybody to find jobs. And if there was a qualified American, uh, most of the time the employers were choosing to do that rather than uh, someone who they had to sponsor. Uh, so it certainly does make it more difficult uh, in this environment. I definitely agree with, uh, with Michelle. Um, so a question was asked about how do you handle a request for a social security number because social security offices um, are, are closed uh, and the employer is, insist, is insisting on a social security number uh, in order to um, uh, have the person start work. Uh, the only solution I can point out there is that an employer is not actually required to collect the social security number in order for the person to start work. Um, there is a provision in the social security regulations, which says that if the person lacks a social security number, there is certain information that the employer has to collect. Um, and if the employer still doesn't have a social security number in February when the person's wages need to be reported, uh, they simply report that information to the IRS. Um, however, most employers, uh, the big problem is not those rules. The big problem is that they have a computer system which won't let you, uh, you know, put the person on payroll without a social security number. So it's a little bit of you have to get into an argument with the payroll division at the employer to say the social security number actually isn't required. Is there a way you can put in a dummy number for now and uh, get the person in your payroll system? Uh, so just uh, 
be aware of that. I don't. I don't yeah, know. and um, okay. just to yeah. jump in, actually, um, there are some Social Security offices that are still open. I just looked into this yesterday. Um, so you know, depending on your state and your city, you might have to go a little bit farther. But there are some Social Security offices that um, are still open um, with some limited staff. So um, that might be a possibility as well. Yeah, and the, the government is also making certain accommodations because some of the Social Security offices are closed with regard to E-Verify. So one of the things that they did do to extend certain timelines is they've allowed longer timelines if there is that tentative non-confirmation in E-Verify and the, the person cannot get an answer um, from the Social Security office. So. That's one of the things that we'll be talking about in the upcoming uh, compliance webinar as well. Uh, this question that probably doesn't apply to a lot of folks on the call, but uh, that asked about um, uh, the question of lowering uh, H-1B workers' wages where the LCA wages are based on a collective bargaining agreement. Um, I would just point out, if the if the lowering a uh, person's wage is consistent with the collective bargaining agreement, or I assume that whatever furlough or salary reduction is negotiated, um, uh, then that's going to that's actually going to lower the prevailing wage. It's not even going to lower the actual wage. Uh, so that um, in that scenario, you would be able to go ahead and um, reduce the person's wage without having to amend the LCA. Uh, of course, you have to do that consistent with the collective bargaining agreement, which may be a bigger challenge. Uh, Michelle, can you, uh, somebody asked whether we're seeing receipt notices uh, take a lot longer. I know you're processing a lot of the mail for our office. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, we haven't really uh, seen a delay in receipt notices. They're still coming in. That being said, um, I think there will be a slowdown in the next couple of weeks for receipt notices and those types of things. Um, the reason being that um, the Vermont Service Center, as mentioned earlier, um, closed for um, about a day and then um, reopened just to accept mail and then said their COVID case was negative, so they are fully open again. I do think that those types of issues might happen um, throughout service centers, so I do think there might be some delays in those receipts um, coming up, especially as postal workers might start to be impacted by COVID and just general operations may slow down. The other thing to note is that USCIS did say that they will delay cap receipt notices for the H-1B cap. So those, um, they've openly said they will not be processing um, very quickly and those will be delayed. Great. I think there's uh, another great question here. Um, can candidates be hired and work remotely at least initially? Uh, we're dealing with this actually a fair amount um, because many people hired are starting to work remotely. Um, it, the answer is yes, right? Um, what we're doing in visa applications, particularly if it's an H-1B or something with an LCA, and they are hired and working remotely initially. Um, what we may do as a precaution um, is put not only the uh, company location, but also the remote, remote work location on the petition um, so the candidate can start and work remotely as well. So we do see uh, folks starting and working remotely. So it can and is being done. Excellent. So uh, one question came about the uh, uh, 
supplemental nutrition income for program for women, infants, children, what's called WIC. Uh, is that considered uh, towards the public charge uh, calculation? Um, I don't know if either of you knows the answer off the uh, top of your head. Um, so I, I know certain nutritional programs like SNAP are um, are specifically exempted from this. Um, so it's possible that that, that um, this program is also exempted, but I don't know um, for sure off the top of my head, but um, uh, happy to look into that. Yeah, mem memory tells me that WIC is actually a benefit provided to the infant, who, of course, if they're born here, is a U.S. citizen, uh, and so wouldn't be counted towards the parent. But again, I uh, uh, we will have to check and follow up with the person who asked that question. All right. Uh, looking through, are there any other? Uh, so, uh, Elise, uh, any inkling when the U.S. consulates might start uh, doing visa processing again? Uh, I wish I knew. <laughs> I really think they're probably going to be reopening as the borders reopen, right? I mean, I, I think we're, we're looking at the situation globally um, in terms of the various peaks for the virus. Um, and what I think is going to be happening is the um, consulates will be opening up. Um, Hopefully, once the Department of State deems it safe for the, um, their employees, for the most part, um, to conduct these face-to-face -face interviews. So I think we have to adopt a wait-and-see approach um, in terms of when the consulates are going to reopen, but I expect it to be pinned very much to kind of the pandemic um, as well in terms of that reopening. Okay, and there was a question of whether candidates uh, have been granted an extension to find opportunities or has that timeline remained the same? I think that's asking the question about the 60-day grace period. Uh, the 60-day grace period is still 60 days. Uh, that hasn't been changed. So if they weren't able to find an opportunity within that 60 days, they would have to um, find a different visa category to apply for. That means they can still continue to work, look for a new job, but it may be a little bit more complicated for them to get back into H-1B status. Um, yep, and there was, um, I'm sorry, Bill. There Go was ahead. another question that asked if um, PTO counted toward that 60-day grace period, um, and, and no, it shouldn't, because that's still right. considered um, employment. So once the PTO is, is done, um, if you have uh, somebody on or using PTO or something like that after, um, then that's when I would start counting that 60-day grace period. So I'm going to, uh, we've got a few questions that are very case-specific, so we'll follow directly with, uh, follow up directly with those uh, uh, employees uh, or, or uh, company representatives to answer those questions. Uh, we don't want to answer real case-specific cases uh, on the webinar. Um, so I want to uh, thank Elise, Michelle, for joining me. Thank you all for taking some time out of your days. Um, here's how to contact us and reach us on social media. We certainly hope that you'll join us for the rest of our uh, series of webinars coming up. Uh, and with that, thank you for, Ed, uh, thank you for listening. And that ends the webinar.